Hey guys, Gary here. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to highlight our sponsor, Sports Engine. Sports Engine is dedicated to making the life of a youth sports volunteer easier. Through their applications, people are able to save time on administrative tasks, allowing them more time to focus on developing their athletes. More than a million teams, leagues, and clubs use Sports Engine every day to run their websites, promote their programs, and to collect signups. They also offer an easy solution for getting uniforms delivered directly to their athletes' homes. It's called Sports Engine Gear, and you can check it out at sportsengine.com forward slash gear to get started. Great. Now, on to our show. You're listening to On The Whistle, the podcast that explores the impact that coaches, teachers, and mentors from youth sports organizations and schools have on young people's lives. Let's get into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Super excited to have you here today. This is another episode of On The Whistle, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Paul Kakamo, an Italian guy from Long Island as or at least his mom's from Long Island. <laughs> and Paul is the founder of a really cool organization called Up To Us Sports. UP, the number two, us.org is their website. Paul's a 25-year veteran of the nonprofit sector and one of the founders of the sports-based youth development movement. This is a very, very bright guy, and, and from what I can tell, highly intellectual, did his undergraduate work at Georgetown, got a graduate degree at Harvard, as they say, where I'm from, and is the recipient of a prestigious graduate award for the innovation and design of social service programs. And so we're really interested in talking to Paul today as On the Whistle continues the exploration of the relationship between mentorship, coaching, teaching and the fabric of uh, youth throughout our communities. So, Paul, welcome to On the Whistle. Super excited to have you here today. Thanks, Gary. And my mom is from South Philadelphia. I'm from Long Island. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the Philly, that's a strong uh, identity, Philadelphia. My daughter is a freshman at Drexel, so we're learning all about oh, it. Yeah. yeah. So, Paul, a little bit about the, the early time. Before we get into the, the current time, I mean, you know, we were joking a little bit before the show we're both I, I don't hide it I'm 51 you look around my age we don't need your, your exact number <clears throat> but this is obviously you know somewhere further into your journey where did the journey begin in terms of understanding that you wanted to take on a life of in essence service leadership like it's clear to me that you've invested in this idea of trying to help bring along the benefit of coaching throughout communities so when did that become your awakening or destination with what you wanted to do with yourself? Sure, Gary. This is a, it's a little bit of a long story, so I'll give you some highlights. Uh, and I am in my mid-50s now, so get ready for a bunch of aches and pains that we didn't realize existed in the 40s and 30s. Paul, you don't look a day over 49. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but, uh, you know, first of all, I think there's always... There's always a, a bit of service in all of us that we get involved at certain points in our in, in our childhood and adolescence and projects that are about community service and, and reaching out to others. Um, and I was always involved in those. But I think the real uh, turning point for me was when I was graduating actually from undergrad, which, as you mentioned, it was Georgetown. It was a Jesuit university. And I 
believe it or not, I had this massive party and the Jesuits were actually having meetings about their missions around the world. And during my party, which uh, the, the beverage was not tea and coffee, uh, there was literally a thousand students ready to graduate on the lawn. And it caused such a ruckus that when the uh, police arrived, they looked for who was running the party. And all of a sudden, there wasn't a thousand people on the lawn. There was basically me trying to pump the keg for the next uh, uh, party goer. And there was four cops around me. And so I was telling the police, I'm graduating. There's no reason to make a big deal of this. And I realized they weren't listening. So I decided to appeal to anyone in the earshot who might have black cloth and a white collar on. And a Jesuit priest was going by. And I said, Father, Father, they're trying to arrest me. I'm graduating. And he, he, I remember he must have been like 90. And he looked, <laughs> I really had to scream to get his attention. We'll put it that way. And he did walk over to the police and he said, why don't we forgive him? Like very Jesuit genteel. Let's forgive mm. this young man. And then I was like, wow, that was so easy. And I turned to walk away and he said, young man, wait one moment. And he asked me, he said, give me your name and number and I'll find a place for you to do penance somewhere. And I was like, huh? <laughs> and so I ended up getting a letter from a priest in the Pacific Islands who was running a school for kids. And he had been there since World War II. The country is the Marshall Islands. Uh, the Marshalls are quite unknown, but they've gotten some attention because they're land atolls that have been disappearing in the ocean with the rising ocean the last 10 years. So I lived in a very, very flat partial of land in the Marshalls. And people conjure up palm trees and, and exotic Pacific life. But in fact, it was all shacks. And it was one of the most densely populated uh, ghettos, you know, in, in the world with tremendous issues of alcoholism. And there, there was an educational opportunity for kids. So there was a lot of depression, anxiety, and, and even teen suicide. Mm. And it was a lot to suddenly be able to part of. And it's a big price to pay for a simple keg party. <laughs> I, I've thought that ever since. Um, and the, the, in the nutshell, Gary, I learned, I, I, I couldn't turn down that experience, even though I didn't never thought I would end up doing a life of, of nonprofit and community service type work. But it was just when life throws something so strange, such a twist, you either have a choice to go the straight and narrow or take that that twisted path. And in this case, it was go and help run a very elderly priest run their school. And I did. And over the course of that year, I learned a lot. Uh, most importantly, that, you know, I wasn't prepared for, for the kind of issues that so many of so that this community faced the Marshallese, but we're all human. And they brought me into their world just as much as I brought some resources and education and teaching skills to theirs. I learned that kids were really isolated in this island and that that isolation created a lot of stress for them. They, they were able to watch at the time it was videos of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Rambo movies. And, but they weren't a part of that world. They were a part of a world of shacks and poverty. I, I realized that education was everything. Because if we could teach kids to get past an eighth grade education, which is where they kind of maxed out at the schools, we could get them to high school. And if they could get to high school, maybe they could go to college in Hawaii or Guam 
or, and maybe come back and help their family get to a different position. So it was those kinds of lessons where I, and, and probably the most fundamental one, which is why did I not have those challenges in my own life? And yet people for no other reason than where they're born experience these challenges. That's when I said, I, I don't know that I'm even thinking that I have a choice, that I have to do something about it. And I spent the next 20 years in nonprofits and community service. And I just want to point out one thing that coming back to coming back to the U.S. and working in cities like New York and Boston and Washington, D.C., where I really first started doing youth development and community organizing, the issues of kids down the street in 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 Roxbury, in uh, Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, in Anacostia in D.C., in many ways are the same. They're isolated. They don't know how to be access all that stuff that's downtown. Then that stuff doesn't seem like it's for them. So it's just a bunch of images and there's depression. There's anxiety. There's a sense of not belonging or being apart. And we see the same exact issue where how do we solve that? And if we, you know, you don't have to go 12,000 miles around the world to see how important it is to help um, how, how much the kids are being isolated and how that's affecting their mental health. You can go down the street from whatever city you're living in and see the same kind of experiences that children are facing. And that's kind of what my mission became through first through education, but for the last 20 years through sports. It's a great background and, and a really fascinating story. Uh, a modern term for what you're describing is called structural inequality. And, you know, people always say, well, what does that mean? Like people have access to a lot of stuff, don't they? But depending on what zip code you're born into, you may or may not have access to the same resources, whether it's capital, nutrition, education, housing, uh, employment opportunities, strictly by the zip code you're born into. And I think that Marshall Island example is a stark one, right? Because you can imagine all of these limitations, one physically, because you're on an island, right? And then you don't resource it properly. And then you have all these stresses. So it's a fascinating story. And then the parallel to that and the other local communities that you described in is, it's really enlightening. I'm going to read a quote. It says, one of the articles of content that you put onto Huffington Post says the new faces of national service are those men and women holding baseballs, soccer balls, tennis rackets, golf clubs, and badminton rackets. Yes, the new faces of service are our 400 up to us sports coaches and the 4 million other volunteer youth sport coaches who pick up the whistle or their whistle this afternoon and help your kids be part of a team. Now, I was so shocked when I read that quote because it is directly in parallel to the ethos and mission statement of our company squad locker, but also the spirit of on the whistle, which is the appreciation and exploration of the impact that coaches and mentors and leaders have on their community by supporting kids. Talk to me a little bit about this quote and how that sensibility became up to us sports. You know, it, thanks. And it's, it's really relevant today because, I mean, certainly when you look at the crises we're facing today, service is, you know, we, we often, it definitely is in the front line, the workers like, uh, um, yeah, the front line workers in healthcare 
people delivering food and meals right now when, when families are isolated, people helping families who may be facing uh, eviction or homelessness. I mean, that's what service looks like right now. But there's an undercurrent of service. And that is, there are a lot of kids out there today, just as there was when I wrote that quote, which was before COVID, who they're experiencing whether it's, it's anxiety about school, anxiety about exposure to violence, anxiety about something going on at home, and today, anxiety about COVID, about what's happened to the world around them, about uh, intergenerational racism, that, that kids, they are experiencing various degrees of mental health challenges. Wait a minute, Paul, are you saying that X's and O's solve that? <laughs> I, I'm saying because I want to make the same correlation. And I think X's and O's are a format to influence the kids while they're making those feelings. But I'd love to know tactically how up to us sports does that and the methodologies behind it, because I get I get the hey, I'm in a bad place and I'm a child and I may or may not have a good relationship with my parents. So as mentor, coach, leader, teacher comes in and take, pays attention to me, my self-worth goes up. My opportunity for outlet about my own personal emotions or needs has an opening and a place. And therefore, I grow as a kid, right? Yes. I mean, that's really what you're after. That's, yes. I mean, that's your mission. And so tell me a little bit about up to us sports. Like, what's the format of it? How do you do that, right? Sure. So, so let me finish that last statement by just saying, when we look at even today, what is national service? What is community service? There is that frontliner worker, but then there is this other secondary response to crises like today. And that, and that is the response of the mental health of these children, the question you just asked, which I'll get to. And who is at the front line of that? Well, that's who children will talk to when they are experiencing stress. They may not always be a parent. Our parent may not be available. And it may not be a, a school or a, counselor, a teacher or a counselor. But when there's a coach, we know that kids often will turn to a coach. They often trust coaches like for no other reason than that's my basketball coach. That's my soccer coach. Sometimes they may not even be qualified to gain that trust. They may not be a great coach, which is something that up to us is trying to train coaches on the skills to be a great coach and to deserve that trust. But they will get the ear of children in ways that other adults don't. And so that is a major sort of secondary response to healing our country today. And it has always been there in communities for all the challenges that kids have faced. And that's why I say that national service isn't just healthcare workers. It isn't just uh, uh, emergency service response folks. It's coaches. They're there to help the mental health of our children and our communities. They're there to make kids belong. And that's one of the fabrics that makes community great, that makes a country great. And that's what national service is. And that's what up to us sports coaches are. So does it, to your question about, you know, the X's and O's, it's not just that a coach is there, but when a coach is trained to use sports in the way that sports can uniquely address mental health, for example, getting every kid during a practice to actually exercise and move, that is a benefit that neurologically makes the brain feel healthier. It actually grows parts of the brains and connections. Um, setting up practices in a way that kids belong, in the way that they build relationships, even with the kid on the team who 
they maybe don't necessarily gravitate towards, maybe because they're not the most skillful, maybe they're not in the same classes or have the same interests outside of the team. Well, when you start to create an atmosphere in which a team builds positive relationships among kids, that is mental health. That's how kids start to build a sense of social confidence that they, they, they belong. When you create rituals and, and, and kind of like what your company represents in terms of team belonging identity and logos and uniforms and, and a sense of ritual, this is how we do it here. These are the rules here. This is what we wear, what we look like, what emblemizes us. That buffers kids from some negative groups that could be more challenging to their long-term mental, physical, and social health. That's so, actually fascinating. Just the idea that the logo has some sort of benefit or or preventive measure to it. It's like a shield, if you will. That's really interesting. I've never thought of it that way. And, and so every single piece of sports, if you break it into its its design that we sometimes have just taken for granted, but we can't take it for granted, especially today with COVID and with, uh, you know, this, the rise of the racial consciousness in America and how much it is impacting so many of our black and brown kids in, in their communities. We can't take for conscious that these things will just happen uh, if a kid plays sports. We have to train our coaches and even our, our teams and leagues on how to take advantage of these components and really create the maximum output in terms of a kid's health and wellness. And it's not difficult. It's actually fun, the training, um, because it's sports. And at the end of the day, if you make sports boring or unexciting or training too methodol- methodological, you'll lose the coach. So we got to make it fun. We got to make it as active as the game. And so that brings us up to our sports and what we do. We started with the idea uh, during my journey uh, from, the, from the Marshall Islands to today was a lot of figuring out this issue of, of wellness among kids. And when I realized that kids did look up to coaches, and specifically in Washington, D.C., I met a a woman who was a teacher who was having challenges getting her kids academically focused. And then one day she started a soccer team really kind of whimsically, only because she bought a soccer ball because she herself was on a league into the classroom. And all the girls are like, what's that? And she explained soccer to them. And they said, can we play? Can you teach us? Next thing she knew, she was a coach. And next thing she knew, she had an entirely different relationship with those kids. Mm. That the girls in her class trusted her like no other adult. And she used that responsibility to say, now we're going to take the kind of strategies we're using in soccer, the teamwork we're building here, and we're going to bring that back into our community and our school life. What are our strategies for graduating? What are our strategies for handling dating, boys, things like that? And she really sort of translated life skills from sports to life skills in teenage girls. And that's when I entered the sports world, is I met her and I was fascinated. This is how you address wellness. This is how you use sports to address academics, how you use it to address Girl confidence. You know, there were just so many things that opened when I met this teacher. And and I said, I'm going to get involved in organizing sports around these outcomes. Today, 10 years ago, I met Commissioner Tagliabu, and it was 11 years ago or so, just when he was retiring, and asked for help to start another nonprofit. And that's up to us, sports. And the idea was there are all these sports programs that are 
working in some of the most challenging uh, socioeconomic urban areas in this country where the, the communities are facing and the kids are facing exposure to violence and poverty and overcrowded schools. And a lot of these programs have the challenge of coaches. How do we have consistent coaching in these communities? Because it's not the same as suburban sports. In suburban sports, usually there's a parent available somewhere in the team who has a job where they can take a few hours off and coach. But go to a low-income urban or rural area, and there may not be the, the economic wherewithal to take off of work. There may not be, there may be a single parent. There may be a grandparent raising kids. So who's going to coach? And so the idea that I had was, why don't we go to programs that the federal government has been sponsoring around other kinds of national service? You may have heard of some of them, Teach for America, City sure. Year. Why don't we create the sports version of that for coaching? Because for all the reasons we've been saying, Gary, it's not about coaching. It's about health and wellness for kids. So the federal government, AmeriCorps is the name of the program, responded, and we built out a national effort to recruit, train, and support coaches in communities that had the challenge of getting consistent coaches to grow sports and make sports available to local youth. And there was one major difference that I realized, and it's partly a reflection of my own experience, was I knew going back to the Marshall Islands, I knew after I helped develop a school, teach the teachers, I taught myself over 150 kids during that year every single day, I knew that when I was leaving, I was leaving. And I wasn't going to be living in the Marshall Islands the rest of my life. And I thought something's got to change in terms of how we do community organizing and national service. The old models and, you know, the old models of I'm going to spend a year in this community helping with this particular service, but it's not my community and I'm going to leave. It, it doesn't work, I don't think, in terms of creating sustainable change. So let's recruit coaches from the same community that we want to serve. And let's not only get more kids the access to play sports, but let's get more young adults the chance to realize that their love of sport makes them a coach and that their ability to serve their community as a coach makes them a leader. And as a leader, they themselves have a whole pathway in front of them that is about community change, community empowerment, about what do you want to do, coach, in your own future now that you realize what kind of a positive influence you can be? So our program has become as much about serving as many kids and leveling the playing field for sports in urban America as it is about elevating the role of coach as community leader. You know, there's a couple pieces of your website content that I, I want to break down, get a better understanding of why you've approached things this way. There is a section on racial inclusion, a piece about including black and brown kids in your programs. There's a piece about gender bias, which is uh, She Coach, or uh, I think is the title of it. So it's clear to me that you're thinking about your program to solve these cultural inequalities. How do you do that and balance the fact that there's a lot of white boys that need help too, right? 
So how do you balance the treatment of the society's topics or stresses, but also keep the program unbiased or open to everybody? So how do you argue the point, hey, by doing that, I'm not giving up on this? So the shortest answer is geography, and it, but, but I, I do want to, and I'll get back to geography in a second. Thematically, we're trying to create the concepts of how sports itself can be a methodology for mental, physical, and social health. That is universal. That's your foundation. Yes. And I often say that this, you know, there is no doubt that I, if I had the resources and if there are listeners out there who are in middle class, upper middle class, wealthy communities, there are kids who are experiencing stress and anxiety, especially this year. All kids are experiencing some level of it. But even without a COVID, there are, there are kids who experience this. There's something going on at home. There's a exposure to a, a dating issue or a bullying issue. So this is, that's universal. And what I'm trying to learn and decipher is exactly how do we get intentional with how we practice coaching sports to address those issues. And it can be addressed from the most wealthy community to the poorest community. It's the same methodology. Every coach should go through our training. Every single coach. What does your coach learn if they go through your training? They learn that don't take it for granted when you get out there and blow the whistle. When you say team up, you know, pair up. That's a moment to bring different, to say, hey, there's a different way of getting kids to pair up. There's a different way of when we sit down, um, when we start practice, maybe we should sit down and spend some team time just as a coach, letting kids in a circle, you know, we're just going to talk about what happened in school today. Who wants to start? The little things like this, which coaches just sort of rush over to sort of get to the athletic skill building, they're critical. And you as the coach may be the only one who gives a kid that experience to feel safe and comfort and to express things like that. So what do they learn? They learn everything from how do you build relationships among the team? How do you build relationships as a coach to the team? How do you observe behavior? Because coaches see things that maybe other adults don't see. And how then, in terms of behavior, how does the, and and now we're getting into trauma, uh, how does the brain work? And how does a child's brain develop? And why is sports so critical to a healthy brain development in children? And what do you as a coach, now that you know, and again, we don't want to make this boring. No one signed up to be a, a, a social worker or a psychologist. They signed up to coach. But Every one of our coaches is fascinated when they learn a little bit about how the brain works and how much the idea of physical activity, of life skills, of relationship building, how it lights up parts of the brain in a child. You can literally see it. And how much when those things are applied in sports, you see a brain light up more than many other activities. And then a coach is like, wow, I can light brains up just by doing a few extra things. And that's why we teach about the brain. And that's why we teach our coaches about, and we'll, we'll get to trauma probably in a little bit about trauma. But then we, we conclude with, you know, how do you then use this in the context of the community you're working in? And, you know, whether you're coaching in a, again, a wealthy community or a poor community, how do you use what we've just learned to what are the challenges of, that kids face in this community? What are the, uh, the languages, the religions, the, the economic situation? And, and how, as a coach, can you be sensitive to that to say, now I understand 
my role in making kids feel they belong. And this team is going to be their buffer from whether it's, you know, negative issues like, you know, alcoholism or issues like violence. Like this team is going to be the buffer for these kids because I want every one of these kids to be great athletes, but I also want every one of these kids to succeed and go to college and have great lives. Coaches do that. So that's kind of the training in a nutshell. It's, there's very specific pieces to get to all that, but we took about 10 years, yeah, it took us six, seven, eight years developing it and we're still developing it. And the question that you originally had about why, you know, why are we particularly focused in black and brown communities is I started this program in urban America and I started it in the, for addressing the fact that kids in low-income urban areas have dramatically less access to sports than kids in wealthier areas. And you can just look at the numbers, a kid growing up in, I mean, we could say like a, a, a Roxbury in Boston, a, a, a West Englewood in Chicago, a Liberty City in Miami. If you go to low-income areas that are predominantly black and brown, there's just less of an opportunity to play sports. And as someone who has spent my entire life in urban America, that's where we focused is let's let's create, let's level the sports playing field while we're learning all these lessons about empowering and training coaches. Now, those lessons translate to coaches in every single community in this country and probably the world. But we're practicing it in the communities that are around me, in our urban communities across this country. And I hope someday that I can get resources to place coaches in rural communities too, because there's a lot of, my goal as a nonprofit is to make sports available to kids in under-resourced communities. Those aren't all, as you suggested, they're not all urban, they're not all black and brown. So with resources someday, we'll have coaches in in under-resourced rural communities as well. So it's UP, the number two, us up to us.org. And I know there is a donate now uh, section on your website. So if you're listening to this episode and you're feeling inspired and, and you want to provide resources to this organization, you know, obviously visit the website and, and get in touch. Paul, you use a phrase called trauma sensitive, and I haven't heard that in coaching. What is trauma sensitive and why does it matter? So first of all, it's a heavy word for coaching. I think it, is, it sounds heavy. Yeah. And uh, you might want to rebrand it. <laughs> uh, you know, and it, it's. Are you talking about kids who have had like a kid who's been abused, a kid who has been abandoned, a kid? I mean, is that the type of trauma? Are you talking about trauma like I got in a car accident, I broke my my you know arm? Yeah. What type of trauma. So, so I am talking about mental health. And I'm, I'm, I, the reason I hesitate and not a little is I want to be sure that the listeners understand your listeners, especially coaches out there, understand that, you know, don't be scared of this term. All right? it, it, it basically, in a nutshell, it is when a kid experiences stress and I, again, take it from the communities that I work in every day, when a kid is you know, a, a kid in uh, this neighborhood in North Lawndale, Chicago, has experienced violence and sees it, maybe an episode of violence once or, once or twice a week, that this causes stress mm-hmm. and that the child, and this goes back into our training with the brain, their brain starts to react to the fact that, wow, it's a dangerous world out there. Now, it could be violence. It could be bullying in a school. 
It could be something emotionally abusive, either at home or in some other venue in the community. But a kid starts to respond to that inside, whether or not they're consciously conscious of their response or not. Their brain does because we all protect ourselves. And so a child, once they start down that path of seeing a stress and start to have that sort of stress response of I'm going to protect myself, it starts to slow down certain parts of the brain that are otherwise out there to make friends, to learn more, to set goals in life. So you have a child where their brain's shutting down because of these episodes. And yet we know anyone who's going to be successful in this world Need to have those sections turned on. You have to use them in order right. to grow. So when we so the definition of that breaking down and shutting down is trauma. And when we say trauma informed coaching, go back to what we described earlier. A coach can light up a kid more than anyone else in, in many ways. And so when we say trauma informed coaching, it's hey coaches, you know, not every one of you are going to experience you know kids who have these levels of trauma, but you might. And so by understanding what trauma is and how it shuts down the brain and by understanding how you in getting kids active in building relationships in being there as a positive adult role model, you are reopening that brain in a way that a teacher can't even do. So be trauma informed, have that in your toolbox. And in the case of our coaches who I support at Up to Us Sports every day, they have to use that trauma-informed coaching almost every day because the kids they're working with do, in fact, experience this all the time. But I have so many coaches who've, who've come up to me from other communities and said, you know, I had a kid who left my team because she felt she was not attractive enough to play in this sports team. Or his, he finally told me that something was going on at home and his parents were alcoholics and he was not doing well with it. Why not have a trauma informed coaching class so that you could be the person to literally save those two kids? Yeah. Unlock the, their potential for them. Paul, one of the questions that I like to ask all of our uh, guests, and this may be related to you. You may want to answer this personally. You may want to answer this on behalf of the coaches or the kids in your program, but Having played a lot of games and been to a lot of tournaments, I'm curious, what do you think is gained more from the wins or the losses? And for those who can't see Paul right now, he's starting to smile and I, I'm seeing him going, going into a deep uh, thought pattern. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I've never been asked that question, which is that's why the thought pattern has suddenly evolved. That's what we like to do. We like to challenge our guests to do some deep thinking. I almost think the, the more popular answer and the one that I actually have to pick is the losses. And it's because for both for me and also for, for, the coach, for the coaches and kids I serve, two different examples in very different ways. For the coaches and kids I serve, you know, the losses teach resilience. And resilience is incredibly important right now. It has always been important in low-income black and brown communities where there has been a lot of odds against kids in terms of, you know, availability of 
you know, equal resources in education and healthcare. So being resilient is critical and you really learn resilience from loss. Uh, and I would say in a very similar way that, you know, my own losses, I just look at yesterday, there was a, you know, obviously I do a lot to try and raise money to get as many coaches on the ground as possible. And every time I, a foundation, I had a big one yesterday, I say, no, nope, we're not going to fund that. That's a loss to me. And I think of, resilience and how much I've learned. So what do I do? I was like, no, no, you know, had my fit because I really wanted that grant. Uh, And then the resilience sets in, which you learn from the losses in your life. And you say, you know what? I'm going to find that money somewhere else. And we've got to keep doing that. I'm going to bounce back. And you don't get that from win. You get that from loss. Paul, you are uh, an absolute inspiration and uh, up to us.org, up to us sports is clearly something that uh, our listeners should pay close attention to and visit your website, read your content on Huffington Post, HuffPost.com and and learn from you. And, uh, you know, the service that you're doing and the service that you're supporting more broadly can only make our world a better place. So, you know, I'm certainly grateful to have met you and uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to On The Whistle. For more, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit us at onthewhistle.com. 